This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, August 24th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, a trifecta of disease. Hark seeks solutions for review bottleneck. Telluride talks budget goals and objectives. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, we all have budget numbers in our head. The monthly Netflix bill, cable TV, your cell phone, and even what you might have spent on beer and food at any of the festivals this summer. Well, create your Kodo budget now and invest in this essential service. Go to koto.org to donate. And thank you. There's a trifecta of disease on public health's radar. Polio, monkeypox, and then COVID. That's San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin presenting before the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners this week. First, polio. An individual recently tested positive in New York City with wastewater data showing presence of the disease in neighboring counties. And Franklin says there is cause for concern for those who are not fully vaccinated. The good news most Americans have received the polio vaccine. For people who've been fully vaccinated and have received at least three doses of um, the polio vaccine are generally going to be protected against this virus. Um, so the big call to action right now is for families to review their vaccine records, make sure um, they're up to date with all of their childhood immunizations, including polio, to protect against this um, uh, vaccine-preventable disease. There are no positive cases of polio in Colorado. Next, monkeypox. According to Franklin, symptoms of the virus, which include fever, swollen lymph nodes, and respiratory symptoms, can take up to 21 days to appear. She says Colorado has identified a number of cases, primarily in the Denver area. The big update for San Miguel County in particular is that we have been approved to administer the vaccine. The main priority category is for people who are post-exposure, so anyone who's been in physical close contact with someone with monkeypox in the last two weeks. Um, And then the other um, population that qualify are um, men who have sex with men um, and have had sexual partners that they don't know um, or have had close physical contact um, with people in a venue um, in the last 14 days. And then the other one is, um, this is a big change from the state side, is anyone identified by public health known as a high-risk contact of someone who has monkeypox, so that gives a little bit more discretion. Finally, COVID. Franklin says locally, cases have continued to decline, but slowly. She adds public health is preparing to administer new booster shots designed to combat the Omicron variant. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the same vaccine formula has been used. And really the tricky part of this virus is how frequent um, it mutates and um, has created new variants. And so these boosters will be bivalent, which means it covers two different variants, the original um, uh, virus and that makeup, as well as Omicron, the BA5 subvariant, which is the most dominant um, strain in the U.S. globally and then um, within Colorado as well. The new booster is currently going through the federal approval process. Franklin says public health has pre-ordered booster shots for when they are approved. But with school back in session and winter coming, Franklin says the community should expect to see an increase in cases. COVID is still prevalent in our communities and as 
kids go back to school, um, their social circles are expanding. And so the likelihood of there being more cases is high. With that said, Franklin says the local schools are prepared to handle cases as they arise. All schools have COVID tests available for free for their students, masks available, um, and um, us as a, as a brainstorming thought partner. And I think that's really um, the extent of where we're at right now. And we'll just plug away as we move forward, recognizing that there will be cases. Franklin encourages families to get their children vaccinated against COVID and, of course, prepare for the flu. San Miguel Public Health will hold flu vaccine clinics this fall. The Town of Telluride's Historic and Architectural Review Commission has a backlog. Right now, we have about 21 small and large HARC applications waiting to go to the board. In the past year, the wait for applications to get on a HARC agenda has been about nine months. That's John Wenzel, Historic Preservation Director for the town, speaking to Telluride Town Council this week. According to a staff memo, that increased wait time is due to a, quote, unprecedented demand for new development in town. Wenzel discussed several options with council to reduce that backlog, including reducing the intensity of HARC review, or some projects outside the historic district. Which could potentially move up to half of our applications um, from board level review to chair level review. Uh, This would reduce the wait for many smaller and non-historic applications. One adjustment would be to increase the threshold for the level of HARC review by changing the definition of project scales for the residential zone district outside the historic district removing the large-scale category, which currently requires a two-step review. We would have the small-scale category, which would be greater than 2,500 square feet. Those would all go to the hard board. Minor-scale projects could be 950 to 2,500 square feet. That would be chair-level review. So insubstantial or staff-level review could be less than 950 square feet. Again, outside the historic district, staff would could review Um, small accessory structures, for example, uh, without having to go to the chair of the board. A similar alteration would also change scale definitions for the commercial zone district, albeit keeping the two-step review large-scale category. One pro to this approach, Wenzel explains, on top of reducing wait times for HARC reviews for some projects, is it would allow HARC to focus more on projects in the historic district. Which is really our greatest area of concern. Staff also recommends eliminating some of the types of applications HARC provides reviews and recommendations for, including preliminary large-scale and small-scale subdivisions, minor-scale subdivisions, preliminary large-scale and small-scale PUDs, and PUD amendments. Wenzel says these categories are confusing for HARC to review. HARC is not typically allowed to discuss or review uses or parking or lot size. We discourage them from talking about those things, except in these cases when we bring them subdivisions and PUDs. Um, A lot of times when we bring them these applications, they say, why are we looking at these? Because there are generally specific criteria that have to be met. And if they're met, they should be approved. So there's not a whole lot of opportunity for HART to provide input or feedback. Council favors the staff recommendations to reduce the HARC backlog. But HARC is also facing a numbers issue. Until last November, Wenzel explains, they had a full board. 
But then... Between November and June, um, we lost one member. Between June and August, we lost one member. And as of August 13, we lost another member. So we're down to four regular members and no alternates right now. That's creating challenges for the board to review applications. One proposal by staff is reducing the board's size. But council is pretty firmly against that idea. Here's council member Adrian Christie. I'd rather later when we change theoretically or go through a charter change, opening up to county or more people that are with or outside of the town limits rather than reducing the size. Still, in an effort to reduce recusals, council is in favor of reducing proximity restrictions for conflicts of interest. Here's council member Dan Enright. The goals of park members are pretty clear in preserving historic preservation, and I don't think that that goal is as affected by proximity in particular as some of the other challenges that may arise from a broader planning and zoning sense. No final decisions came from Tuesday's work session. Council instructed staff to bring options for action with the recommended staff changes to reduce the HARC backlog and the proximity change for conflict of interest recusals. There are the basics for what local government does. Maintain roads, provide sanitation, law enforcement. But how does the government know what to prioritize? What are the goals and visions for the coming year? That was the topic of conversation at Telluride's town council meeting this week. Council held a work session to begin budget conversations for 2023, while also taking a look back at success stories from 2022. Your budget uh, should reflect uh, policy, and, and we hope to build some really great uh, policy here moving into the 2023 budget. That's Telluride Town Manager Scott Robson presenting before council on Tuesday. Uh, this really is that annual effort to reflect the goals and uh, of our elected officials, uh, our council, and uh, you were certainly elected by the community, and we want these goals and, and objectives to reflect uh, those community needs. As a framework, town council breaks its goals and objectives into four buckets, as Robson calls them. We have preserving community. We have protecting health and quality of life. We have crit- addressing critical infrastructure needs uh, and cultivating economic sustainability and a successful commercial core. In this meeting, Robson leads council through a working document of town priorities. Some are colored green. Those have been completed. Yellow bullet points are in progress. Red ones haven't been started. And blue signifies new objectives to potentially add for 2023. Subcategories for the buckets include pursuing affordable housing opportunities, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, promoting mental health and well-being, addressing water and wastewater infrastructure and funding needs, and evaluating efforts of marketing and tourism activities. When it comes to adding new objectives or laying out goals for the ones that exist, Mayor Delaney Young urges caution at overcommitting. We had very aggressive um, and optimistic goals for 2022. And I just, it's not a bad thing. We can carry stuff over, not a problem that happens. However, I think we should be very cognizant going into 2023. Council member Mian Fee agrees. These are our goals and they have to be achievable. Like it can be pie in the sky as much as we want. But if we know that we're not going to be able to hit these targets, then we need to adjust the target to something that allows us 
and move forward in a way and, and be responsible with what we're communicating to the public as well. Aside from the year-by-year goals and objectives, Fee believes the town needs a more comprehensive visioning document. I think we need like a full, comprehensive, complete plan for where we're going from now to 25 years from now, mm-hmm. um, because we are, we're building out this town and the decisions we make right now are decisions that we're not going to be able to change. We do need to have a plan that says we need X number of square feet of commercial. We need X number of parking spaces. We need this. We need that. We need the other things so that we're aiming towards a goal. So we know exactly how many units we need for affordable housing. We need how many units we need that are going to be free market. We need know exactly what the pieces are that are going to create a holistic community. But I think like having that actual master plan that tells us where we need to go to is the only way that we're going to be successful with any of these projects in the long run. Council member Jesse Ray Arguez agrees, but adds that visioning document needs to go even further than Telluride, especially when it comes to housing. As we're doing all these housing projects, having infrastructure meet the needs of these new housing projects is critical. And regionally, what we can do together, whether it's Norwood, Ofer, San Miguel Valley Corporation, Telski, like these are conversations that we need to be having together because we all rely on each other. And we're all, people are, you know, driving from Norwood to town or vice versa. There's so many layers to how this community is working to isolate just Telluride when we're talking about comprehensive plan, I think is short-sighted. Like if we're going to do it, we need to include our region in these discussions. The town of Telluride is planning to move forward with creating a comprehensive plan for the town. It is currently in the process of creating a community vision and action plan. And for the meantime, Telluride's 2023 budget goals and objectives moves forward. I think we've made great progress during a, you know, a really kind of a transition year in some ways. Again, we're only seven months in. It's not like this year is over. So Great progress. We kind of added more than we took off to, to goals and objectives so far, it feels like. But we can kind of use this as our as our roadmap, as it should be. And uh, yeah, just excited about what's in front of us here. This is a, this is a really, uh, I think, aggressive, but uh, largely doable uh, list. Staff plans to clean up the draft of goals and objectives. Council will continue its discussion on the 2023 budget at its meeting on Thursday, September 1st. The West continues to see the impacts of climate change. And in Colorado, local governments are trying to do something about it. Telluride Town Council heard a presentation this week from Colorado Communities for Climate Action, or CC4CA, on its accomplishments in this year's state legislative session. CC4CA is a coalition of local governments advocating for state and federal climate policy. Telluride is a member of the group. CC4CA Advocacy Director Anita Seitz explains the group promotes the climate needs of its member communities at the state and federal level. Colorado Communities for Climate Action is a coalition of 39 different local governments. Um, There are counties and municipalities that advocate for strong uh, state and federal climate policy. Local governments have a very unique voice and perspective when it comes to climate impacts and the vulnerabilities that you face. Um, And oftentimes in policy discussions at the state capitol, um, that perspective is missed. CC4CA works to promote that perspective to state lawmakers. Sites tallies up the coalition's accomplishments from this year's legislative session. So we had eight high priority bills 
Um, six of those priority bills we assisted in getting passed. Um, one of our priority bills was vetoed by the governor and another one just never made it to a, a second round of voting. It's just calendar management from leadership. We assisted in defeating five bills that would have been problematic for climate action or local climate action in the state. And then we monitored four other bills. And we do that if we, right now it's a benign bill, but there might be amendments made that put us in a support position or potentially make it a noxious bill and we need to kill it. The bills which passed cover a wide range of climate initiatives, including air quality monitoring, support for electric vehicles and public transit, waste management and recycling, updating building codes, and opening sources of funding to small communities. Another update Sites was excited to share. The days of coal-burning power plants in Colorado are coming to an end. The state's last coal power plant will soon be shuttered. It will be the last coal power plant in the state of Colorado. It is the state's largest source of carbon emissions, like single source for carbon emissions. Um, and we, it's going to be closed significantly earlier um, than planned um, because of this. Town council members applauded the progress which CC4CA is making. Member Dan Enright, who is Telluride's representative to the coalition, says town has recently adopted its own climate action plan and is now looking to take steps toward implementation. We adopted our climate action plan, but the next major step is, of course, actionable steps to reach those goals that we've set. And CC4CA, the resources that they provide can help achieve those larger goals for us from the state level uh, because it's going to take action at every level, municipal, county, state, and national, in order to really achieve those goals. Site says CC4CA can help connect Telluride and other small communities with state and federal funds to tackle climate initiatives. Major federal funding from the Infrastructure Bill and the recent Climate Bill, known as the Inflation Reduction Act, will soon become available. Looking to the future, CC4CA is excited to help connect its Colorado communities with a slice of that green energy pie. A new trail, maybe, just maybe, could come to the Telluride region. San Miguel County is initiating a feasibility study to look into potentially building a trail connecting the Down Valley Park in Placerville to the county's M59 River Trail just beyond Sawpit. The roughly 3.5-mile trail would be for pedestrians and cyclists. A grant from the Colorado Department of Transportation is helping the county with the feasibility work. The aim, the county notes, is for the trail to run along publicly owned lands, but easements on private properties may be sought in a few locations. A public meeting is slated for late September to provide more details and gather public input. Still, don't expect a trail to come too soon. The county hopes to complete the feasibility study in early 2023. That will determine whether it moves forward to build part or all of the Down Valley Connector Trail project in the coming years. The 2022-23 school year is officially up and running. Students are in classrooms, teachers are teaching, but where do parents go if they have questions? Like so many things, the library is the answer. Next week, the Wilkinson Public Library will be hosting a coffee talk with Telluride Middle High School principal Sarah Kimball about the current school year. Parents are invited to come, ask questions, and chat about everything school. The Cuppa with Kimball event will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Tuesday, August 30th from 8.30 to 10 a.m. 
coffee, and muffins will be provided. A group of local scientists, nonprofit leaders, and interested citizens headed up Independence Pass east of Aspen in a small airplane last week to look for places to restore beavers. The group included experts from the Independence Pass Foundation, the Watershed Biodiversity Initiative, Roaring Fork Audubon, and the Colorado Natural Heritage Program at CSU. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio and Aspen Public Radio, Eleanor Bennett reports. Local ecologist Delia Malone works with the Natural Heritage Program and the Sierra Club Colorado. She helped organize the tour with EcoFlight, a local nonprofit that helps people see the landscape from the air. Malone says beavers and their dams play an important role in replenishing groundwater and keeping streams like the Roaring Fork River and its tributaries flowing year-round. But just a fraction of the original beaver population remains after fur trappers decimated their numbers across North America in the 1617 and 1800s. And if we think about the idea that our headwater streams provide the flow uh, that goes into the Colorado, and think about the idea that the Colorado is in dire shape right now. Beavers store a tremendous amount of water. If we can just get them back to where they once were, they will make a dramatic contribution to improving those flows. Tom Cardamone is a local ecologist and the executive director of the Watershed Biodiversity Initiative. He joined Friday's flight and says beaver dams can also help create critical wetland habitat. Something that I think biologists all generally agree on is that riparian wetland areas support about 80 percent of our nesting bird population and 75 percent of all native wildlife in this area depends on wetlands and riparian zones for at least a part of their life cycle. The group that flew with EcoFlight plans to meet again this week to compare notes and identify areas that look the most promising for beaver restoration up Independence Pass. They'll next visit those areas on foot and then work with agencies like the Forest Service and Colorado Parks and Wildlife to propose restoration efforts. Eleanor Bennett, Aspen Public Radio News. For decades, the Colorado River filled Glen Canyon to the brim. That's where Lake Powell is, the second largest reservoir in the country. But climate change and overuse are causing the reservoir to decline to a new record low, leaving the water supply for tens of millions in the southwest uncertain. To show us what Lake Powell looks like at this historic moment, Luke Runyon from KUNC took a boat trip with longtime river runners. Mike DeHoff steers his small metal motorboat down what you could argue is the weirdest stretch of the Colorado River. The water is supercharged with sediment and roiling, the same color as a latte. I think that we'll see a place where the river's no longer, the current is no longer moving. This is the delta of Lake Powell, the place where the flowing Colorado River meets the Stillwater Reservoir. Gnarled spires of clay rise up out of the river channel. DeHoff calls these mudbergs, like icebergs, but made of mud. They're formations created by a river that hasn't flowed in this reach for more than 50 years. The mudbergs that we'll see defining and um, changing the river corridor, they change day to day, month to month. That's terra incognito for me. 
Lake Powell usually conjures images of wakeboarders and houseboats, not mud rapids. Its low level is terrifying to water managers, but DeHoff and other longtime river guides and environmentalists see this moment as hopeful, not catastrophic. When the reservoir was full, where we're boating now would have been deep underwater, a muddy mess of river sediment. With the reservoir at a historic low, the lake bottom is exposed and the river is carving through it, creating a bizarro world where everything you see is made of mud. This is like a river on an acid trip right now. DeHoff has spent decades running raft trips down Cataract Canyon, the area just upstream of Lake Powell known for its whitewater rapids. For the last five years, with a few partners, he's run a project called Returning Rapids, an attempt to document the change happening here. We set up camp on a sandy beach nestled inside the mud canyon. DeHoff takes a seat in a fold-up chair with Pete Lefebvre, a longtime river guide. The two work together on the project. Early on, Lefebvre says they found that asking one simple question, where can we go rafting, often led to 20 more about sediment, water supply, hydropower production, and the future of recreation here. We just didn't even expect to be studying this area the way that we are right now. Yeah. Uh, just because of how fast the river is moving downstream and the lake is dropping. The federal government has recently pulled emergency levers to prop up Lake Powell. Without enough snow in the Rocky Mountains and downstream demands for water going unchecked, Lefebvre says it feels like the whole Colorado River Basin is at a breaking point. I think that we don't, as a species, react until it's like, oh man, we need to do something. And we're getting to the point where people are saying, man, we need to do something. The next day, we motor into Lake Powell and veer up into one of its many side canyons for a hike. We splash through a flowing creek full of tadpoles, run our hands over towering willows. Oh man, that smell. The willows. Smells so alive. Eric Balkin runs the Glen Canyon Institute, which advocates draining Lake Powell and moving what's left of its waters downstream. He points out a high water mark from the reservoir stained on the red rock 100 feet above our heads. There are a lot of big changes coming to the Colorado River, and this is one that's a good change. You know, to see this canyon come back is really special. Some environmental groups want to see the dam decommissioned and the canyon behind it restored. Balkin says this current moment of reckoning on the river, where users are collectively trying to figure out how to use less, should be seen as an opportunity. Now we're being a, given a chance to rethink this place. And the reason why it was a mistake was because it had so much value beyond a storage tank. And with the reservoir on the decline, Balkin says some of those values are a lot easier to see, smell, and feel. I'm Luke Runyon, near Bullfrog, Utah. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 50 degrees and a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Thursday, expect showers and thunderstorms. With a high in the mid-60s, Thursday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 50 degrees and a 60% chance of precipitation. 
Friday calls for showers and possibly thunderstorms with a high in the mid-60s. Friday night should be partly cloudy with a low in the mid-40s and a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms. This has been the news for Wednesday, August 24th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our summer fund drive. A huge thank you to Marty Prohaska, Steve and Michelle Hoish, Daniel Zemke, Teddy Erico, Phil Hayden and Lee Sullivan, Kyle Kohler, Kara Pallone and Rich Post, Kristen Hughes, Janet Humphreys and Mark Azard, William Purdy, Nancy Landau, Carrie DeStefano, Kristen Marcos, Steve Lipman, Jimmy Moody, Mackenzie Brewer and Chris Fish, Deb Dion, Cindy O'Brent and family, Brent Fontana, Amy Levick, Mark and Terry Dollard, Richard Foley, Scott Baker, Christine Ring, Virginia Squire, John Carter, Peter Hans, Maureen Hanna, Carol and John Dix, Tobin and Ann Brown, Caitlin Stoley, Tom Nading, Laura Cook, Kevin Cooney, Laura Jelnick, and Sam Morton. Thank you all so much.